Hello, thanks for listening to this podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman, and my guest this week is Dr. Alex Channon, Senior Lecturer in Physical Education and Sports Studies, as well as course leader on the Sports Studies Programme and the Sports Business Management Programme. Alex's research focuses a lot on combat sports, so we talked a lot about the medical issues surrounding those sports, how they're regulated, the difference between fighting and violence, as well as concussion, something which regularly comes up in so many sports. I've studied sport and exercise science as an undergraduate, and then from there I developed an interest in sociology and the, the social uh, aspects of sport and physical activity. So I went on did a master's and a PhD in the sociology of sport. Um, from there I got my first lecturing post at the University of Greenwich, uh, and then after being there for, I think, four years I was there, and then I, I joined the University of Brighton in 2015. We're going to talk in detail about uh, your research uh, relating to combat sports mainly uh, shortly. Uh, let's talk about your teaching work here first though. Um, so can you tell us more about what you specialise in, what you teach? Yeah, so I teach broadly the, the social aspects of sport, physical activity, physical education, fitness and so on. Sometimes that involves very sort of theory-driven sociology modules uh, where students who are come to university thinking they're going to be studying PE uh, end up studying marks um, <laughs> a little bit anyway uh, and then other times it's, it's a lot more sort of um, sort of real world issues driven so we're, we're looking at things that have recently happened for instance in you know certain controversies in sport and trying to understand what brought them about and uh, you know how the media respond to them um, how people react to them and, and what sort of implications they might have for, uh, for our students when they go out into the world of work you know what kind of key problems will they be dealing with if they're going to go and work uh, for a sport governing body or for developing community sport and so on so uh, those are the kind of things that I deal with uh, and I teach them across a range of different programs here at the university so sometimes I'm teaching them to uh, you know, sort of social issues for physical education students mostly then they're interested in things like uh, equity and inclusion um, things of that nature or education policy uh, and then I'm teaching sport business and I'm teaching also the sports studies students who are um, yeah, more interested in sort of the wider adult world of, of sport, if you like. So uh, a range of things within the, the social science uh, framework. When you say about some of the controversies, what sort of things have you been focusing on in recent times? Um, so there's some that, that never go away, things like doping. Uh, you know, why do athletes dope? Why do we think it's a bad thing? How should we best control it, if at all? Those kind of questions. Um, and then there's, there's some more sort of um, pertinent contemporary things like uh, athletes with hyperandrogenism. So the Casta Semenya ruling has been a you know, big topic for conversation for the last couple of years. Um, things that sort of ebb and flow. So women's, uh, women's football, uh, you know, this year, obviously the World Cup huge huge impact on, on the, in the media in this country big talking point um yeah things that sort of come around in in the news cycle that never really go away and then those things that uh, that come out of um you know that, that come into the fore in, in quite profound ways so yeah it's, i'd say it's uh the world of sport gives us plenty of material to to get our teeth into and i think it's a really great way to to take you know 18 year olds um you know, young adults who wouldn't really spend a lot of time thinking about things like, you know, what is gender, you know, and, and unpicking that in, in much detail or thinking about, you know, how does power work in society? You know, and you get these kinds of examples, corruption in FIFA, you know, um, the, the inclusion of, uh, of, of transgender people in sport, you know, and it gives them a chance to then take something they're really interested in, which is sport, and use that as a hook to get them to learn about things that are uh, relevant in, in, you know, more walks of life and, and you know, helping them to become... Um, future graduates in a range of different professions. Mm. You've been a lecturer for um, a little while now. What do you, how did you get into teaching and uh, how would you describe your approach to it? 
So, yeah, most people who, who come through the system in, in the way that I did, so doing a PhD and then going on to, to academia, uh, you kind of see yourself as a researcher first and foremost. That's what you're encouraged to do. You, know, you get trained to be a researcher and you get judged on how good you are researching for you know, to get your PhD. You don't really get a lot, typically, um, of, of preparation. or of, So, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shock the first year or so. You know, you go from being a full-time researcher to being a full-time educator um but I, I really enjoy it you know it's it's very rewarding and um spending pretty much all of my working life talking to young people who are enthusiastic about the same things i am uh, it's great you know so it's yeah it's, it's it's wonderful really um how i got into it is yeah it, it, i wanted to continue studying to take my education as far as i could and once you get to that that doctoral level it sort of becomes the natural next step if you want to stay in academia that's where you go um, and i think you know, I've really, I've really enjoyed that transition. You know, at first it was a little bit confusing to to shift gears quite dramatically, but yeah, I really enjoy it, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's a great, great, great job. Before we go into your research, which mainly focuses on combat sports, where does that interest come from? I started training in uh, kickboxing when I first went to university, so that would have been two thousand four. Uh, before that, I'd done a little bit, you know, here and there, a few classes in, in boxing gyms, uh, and of course, every young boy to some extent thinks they're going to be a professional wrestler or something if they're not going to be a footballer um so you know i've been been sort of scrapping with my mates all my life and um yeah i, I found it really as, as a sport to do at university it was it was fantastic it wasn't a team so you didn't have to worry about making the team um there wasn't that kind of competition against your own teammates to to, to do well which there was in a lot of other sports that um that i, that I was interested in so I really took to it that, that sort of social inclusion actually I found really really great as well as the general interest in martial arts great for fitness and all the rest of it so it became a um I don't like to use the word passion I don't I think it's a bit of a cliche but it, it was something that I, I did a lot of and cared a lot about um so I trained in, in kickboxing and then I I changed to do um kung fu and did that for about five years while I was studying and since then just a little bit on and off. Um, I'm back on at the moment. I'm training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, but yeah, I've been training for a long time and uh, just really enjoy being part of that world. And I think one of the things that, that made it interesting as a research topic was um, there's not a huge amount of research on martial arts. There's, there's a growing body of, of research now over the last 10 years or so. At the time when I first started doing this this stuff, there was it, it wasn't as well... Uh, understood in the sociology of sport as football was for instance mm. so you know there was a gap there to, to to do research on but also i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about combat sports particularly the, the competitive full contact fighting a lot of people have um yeah a lot of stereotypes a lot of uh, misconceptions um sometimes they're they're justified but most of the time i think people are, are very very far of the mark with the way they they dismiss and uh, and stigmatize these sports so there's there's plenty of chances there to, to sort of you know to speak to that and um you know offer some insight that surprises people uh, a lot of the time yeah when you're talking about the stereotypes it's i guess one of, one of the main ones might be one of the a sort of campaign that you've basically been behind which is the love fighting hate violence um is that kind of one of the things that you're talking about really how this isn't about violence it is literally about a skill mm. yeah yeah it's, that's partly one of it um this this project love fighting hate violence I started it with my colleague Christopher Matthews, who used to work at this university, he's at Nottingham Trent now, and we developed this really out of, out of our uh, different research projects on, um, he, he's a, he used to be a boxer and he studied boxing for quite a while and I studied various different martial arts, and yeah, one of the, the things that we, I mean certainly in my work, I would always ask, particularly men if I'm talking about 
um, their their understanding of uh, masculinity in martial arts. It was something that I was interested in. Um, one of the questions I would always ask is, what do you make of this idea of martial arts being violent? And always the, the response would begin with something like, I'm not a violent person. Or, you know, I can see why people might think that, but I don't think it's violence. So it's an intriguing proposition. You know, you, you spend three or four times a week, a couple of hours each time, you know, maybe more, um, punching people in the face and being punched and throwing people on the ground and choking them and so on, and you don't think it's violent. You know, that's that's really interesting, right? It's a paradox. So let's kind of unpick that. So from a research point of view, it was interesting, um, but also from a practitioner point of view, feeling what it's like to be punched and kicked by someone who you're training with compared to those very few times in my life where I've been, you know, involved in actual altercations where the physical... Um, impact of those you know those fights the, the 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 violent fights has been relatively minor you know but most people when they fight they, they're not very good at it <laughs> they, don't, they don't hit very hard or they you know it's, it's sort of scrappy and messy um but the, the way that feels to be involved in that situation is completely different and much much worse more more unsettling more more um you know it's frightening and it leaves a bit of a psychological mark and so on uh, much worse than the kind of thing that goes on in the training hall where you can be beaten very hard you know you, you can be injured you can be out you might even need to go to hospital um but the feeling of that is, is just completely different from a, a sort of a personal sort of um phenomenological point of view mm. so trying to understand what it is that makes martial arts activities so different to effectively the exact same action outside of that context is what started us um, with this love fighting hate violence project so what we wanted to do was really take that that awareness that martial artists have combat athletes have that this isn't violence they know what violence is you know in a way that a lot of people don't or at least they know what violence isn't and that gives us a chance to to sort of make that a, um, a foundation for dialogue about recognizing violence and hopefully preventing it so one of the things that we've we've consistently said is that violence uh, non-violence and violence is sort of separated by uh, one of the boundaries that separates them is, is consent and violation in a boxing match you know you touch your gloves it's a signal of consent. You know, in a martial arts gym, you bow when you enter the mat and so on. It's a signal that you've crossed the threshold. You've, you've indicated to somebody else that, okay, I'm willing to hit you. I'm willing for you to hit me. So if we think about consent as a really important philosophical underpinning of what makes this ethically okay, then we can recognise consent in these environments. Maybe we can start thinking about how we recognise consent in other environments where perhaps we might assume that people are okay with us treating them one way or another, um, but maybe they aren't. And maybe we need to be more reflective about that. So what we're trying to ultimately do, long-winded response to your question, is use martial arts as a sort of a site for teaching young people about consent. Great. Um, and let's talk about some of the, the research um, that you're focusing on um, at the moment. A lot of it focuses on, I guess, sort of um, medical care and how sort of athletes are looked after in in, in, in combat sports. So we were talking about um, one of the bits, the areas that you're looking at at the moment about unlicensed area first. What are we talking about here? So combat sports are a, a funny thing in the UK. They are um, they're legal by virtue of the fact that they're not explicitly illegal. And I think actually it's the, the legal principle of consent on which a lot of contact sports, not just fighting sports, but contact sports rest. If you get a heavy tackle in rugby, you know, it's, it's, you're not going to be, the person who tackled you isn't going to be prosecuted in the way they would if they just dived at you on the street because it's, it's implicit that you've consented to that, in, you know, by being in that environment. So, yeah, you've got combat sports legality is, is there around that sort of, kind of like an unwritten rule in, in a sense. It's, it's, it's not formally um, governed. So 
Boxing um, has a couple of governing bodies in this country, the British Boxing Board of Control um, and the uh, England Boxing, for the, which do professional and, and amateur fights respectively. So they technically control those sports and they govern them in, in those areas. But it's entirely possible and legal for you and I, if we raise a little bit of money, next weekend we could stage a boxing match. And we wouldn't have to have the BBBFC or England Boxing or anybody else looking over our shoulders to make sure we were doing the right thing. We could do that. That would be legal. And that does happen quite often. Um, the white-collar boxing phenomenon is something which a lot of people are, are, have heard of now. It's where you do eight-week training programs, raise money for charity and so on. Uh, white-collar boxing is not regulated by either of those governing bodies. It does have a certain sense of, uh, of structure to it. There are companies that, uh, that run these things and they, they have a public image to uphold, so there is that at least. But then there are boxing matches that take place um, on a kickboxing event, for instance. So you'll have a kickboxing show and you'll feature two or three boxing matches on there. Not white collar. Uh, it's not affiliated to any of the sort of recognisable white collar companies. And it's not governed by England Boxing. It's not governed by the BBBFC. So you've got effectively underground boxing. Uh, you know, it's a, not uh, the most accurate term, but you've got unlicensed boxing mm. taking place quite often uh, all around the UK. Um, despite the existence of these two governing bodies which are you know fairly fairly powerful and fairly well funded then outside of boxing you've got various different types of kickboxing and of course you've got mixed martial arts which is the study that you referred to is where i've, I've gathered most of the data for uh, in mixed martial arts there are not uh, any formal governing bodies within the, the structures of uk sport for those uh, for those those sports so you do have governing bodies but they don't really govern Right. So then you've got, I guess, people, you've got a situation here where there are athletes who are sort of not quite good enough to make the grades to jump to an elite sport, mm. but they have some sort of talent and they're going into an area where they can maybe oh, earn some sort of prize money, but it might not be much, but it might be most of their earnings that they're, that they're actually earning. So they're throwing themselves into a potentially dangerous situation, which isn't particularly regulated, and maybe without the proper medical care as well, if they were to get seriously hurt. Even at the highest levels in mixed martial arts in this country, the highest levels, so we're talking UFC, Bellator, and, and you know, these very, very large international promotions, they're not answerable to a governing body. Not like, um, you know, in football, you've got FIFA and you've got the FA in this country and so on. Uh, in various other sports, you have various different layers of, of infrastructure, you have various different layers of, um, of governance. You don't have that in mixed martial arts. You do have people who are, who are working hard, you know, and I should, I should mention that the, uh, there was a recently formed uh, English Mixed Martial Arts uh, Association that's trying to set itself up as a governing body for, for MMA in England, uh, but they don't actually have power to govern. So, you know, again, if we had some money and we, we had a few friends, we could put on an MMA show next weekend. As long as we manage to get insurance, um, you know, it's, it's up to the insurer to set conditions for us, um, we, we could do it. And there would be nobody looking over our shoulder to know, to, to, to monitor how we've run it. So there, there are people people who are trying to govern these things uh, at all levels you know they're trying their best and they are uh, from what i've seen you know they, they're well-intentioned and they do want to protect and promote fighters safety and you know develop the sport at the same time uh, but they don't have the power to actually do that and at the end of the day if it's going to cost us in our hypothetical event if it's going to cost us an extra um you know four or five grand to tick all the boxes that they want ticked we're not going to do it you know because we can make more money by by not or it might not be a matter of us making money it might be the, the the feasibility of it we might not be able to afford to put it on at all if we followed all of the regulations that um the powers that be are, are trying to uh, to put in place so yes there are there are athletes who are up and down the country um competing on shows 
very regularly, uh, very limited record keeping, tracking of their, their injuries. Um, in some cases, the medical care is excellent. In other cases, the medical care is non-existent. I've seen and, uh, and heard of quite a few shows where the medical staff who've been booked um, are not qualified at all. They just wear a nice bottle green jumpsuit with medic on the back, but they don't have any qualifications. So, it, yeah, it's a bit of a messy situation right now. And, um, yeah, the unlicensed fight scene in kickboxing and MMA is the fight scene in this country. Yeah, so the loaded question then, I guess, is what needs to happen now? Who can, how, how, can it, how can an unregulated sport without a governing body regulate itself? Does it need to have more, in, there needs to be more input in this country, at least from UK sport? to make it compulsory is it is it a government policy thing how high ups they need to go um i think recognition from uk sport uh, and sport england especially when sport england control funding channels and then they can set rules that people have to follow if they're going to you know receive um receive government money i think that's uh, absolutely uh, the way to go the difficulty is this is quite political um i mentioned there's two different governing bodies for boxing historically and based on the interviews that i've conducted with some uh, folk who have been attached to them at different points they don't get on that well with each other they don't often talk to each other very much um likewise within various different martial arts there are lots of schisms and splits between you know the various kickboxing bodies and so on also between martial arts and this is a, a bit of an issue given the olympic status of judo and um to some extent boxing taekwondo wrestling um mixed martial arts wants to be an olympic sport the the international mixed martial arts federation have been um campaigning for that they've recently had their application to join uh, the gsaif denied um i don't know if they were given a specific reason but i think everybody is is sort of saying well it's probably because wrestling won't let them uh, or judo won't you know have resisted it because it's it's territory right it's taking up territory so i think there's there's some political things i should add as a caveat this isn't something i've actively researched so i might be you know i might be off the mark on these things but this is the impression that i get that it's a little bit political so for that kind of recognition that comes through being an olympic sport which then filters down if, if it's in the olympics it will be team gb and it will it will be it have to be then organized more uh, you know more effectively through the the infrastructure that exists if that were to happen i think you would see the opportunity at least for um better regulation to come into play but as i mentioned at the start we've got two boxing governing bodies that have been around for a long time that have you know a lot of history and they they they, they control the sport to some extent in this country but you still get boxing happening outside of their remit so i don't think it's um you know a simple solution of yes let's get a governing body that's regulated by uh, and, and, and you know affiliated with uk sport and sport england and that will take care of all the problems. I think there needs to be changes to uh, the legal status of these sports uh, before that will, um, you know, filter down and, and really protect people from the, um, yeah, the worst cases of, of bad practice that we've seen. Mm. We'll come back to some of the sort of medical issues and dangers in just a moment. Mm. Sort of going back to the love fighting, hate violence kind of um, project, really. I mean, ultimately, is the the public and media perception of combat sports and I mean that from outside the combat sport community um, whether they might be journalists or people that are, are fans or participants um, only gonna, is that sort of perception only going to change if there's more coverage around what's being done positively in terms of athlete welfare I mean do the fighters do themselves any favours when they when they participate in the sort of usual trash talk that we see basically to sell shows whether that be for tickets or, or pay-per-view is that kind of what puts people off the neutrals puts people off and maybe gives them that kind of 
view of the sport? That's a really good question, and um, it's a bit of a paradox, I think. And I love teaching with this, you know, for, for a nice little example because you ask, you know, who's heard of uh, who's heard of the UFC, and you know, yeah, half the class, or you know, ninety percent of the class will now will put their hand up, um, and then you ask, you know, who's heard of Daniel Cormier? And, you know, most of the hands go down. Okay, who's heard of Conor McGregor? And all of the hands go up, even if they're not heard of the UFC. So fighters like McGregor, and he, you know, he's a polarising figure within the sport. He is a fantastic fighter, there's no doubt about that. And he has certainly improved the recognition, the brand recognition of of MMA, of UFC, um, and, you know, his own personal brand, obviously. Um, But, yeah, he he then, a couple of weeks ago, he was in the news for punching an old man in a bar for refusing to drink his whiskey um you know and various altercations like this with members of the public where he's he's you know he's a bully you know he's, he's coming across very badly and that i don't think that does any favors for the image of the sport um but at the same time it's, it's exposure isn't it and i think people who, who are going to watch fighting sports they are attracted by this you know by this sort of bad boy this sort of bad attitude this kind of uh, kind of pro wrestling style hype that gets put into uh, into these shows so it draws an audience in um and i think there's there's probably a line at which you know once that line gets crossed people start to get repelled and i think conor mcgregor has crossed that line a couple of times um, the big fight with um khabib namagamedov's um uh, entourage with you know in their their second match uh, sorry their, their their match at um God, I forget the number of the UFC it was last year. <laughs> this is October, terrible, isn't it? October last year, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, October last year. So that, that you know, that was that was uh, pretty appalling, and that I think people were shaking their heads. Now, the history of the UFC in particular, obviously, MMA is not just the UFC, but the UFC is, is a very important case study. Um, you know, they've, they've always been walking this line between violent enough to draw people in and to be you know sort of sexy and dangerous and different to to boxing and, and other sports um but not too violent that you know people are losing teeth and there's blood all over the place and it's it's grim and people end up getting turned off from it um a colleague of mine from from canada wrote a fantastic paper on the the aesthetic framing uh, of mixed martial arts by mixed martial arts commentators uh, gordon brett if anyone wants to uh, look him up um about how the aficionados in mma make these judgments you know what's too violent and what's what's okay what's acceptable so yeah i think the, the people who promote these sport they, they walk a fine line uh, groups like the the imaf the international mixed martial arts federation um they're pushing quite hard to, to present this as sport, it's athletics. They're working very hard with uh, junior and cadet level. You know, it's a sport for children and so on. So they, to present that as a as a sport where, um, you know, you've got all this sort of violent trash talking and this meanness and bullying, that to them is is anathema to what they're trying to do. The image they're trying to present of the sport. Ultimately, they're trying to get into the Olympics. So of course, you can't have trash talk at the Olympics. Uh, yeah, right? and also completely doesn't fit with the Olympics sort of code. Completely doesn't fit. Yeah. So you've got these tensions all over the place. I, I think people enjoy it. people enjoy fighting sports they even if it's just on a very implicit level they recognize that it isn't really violent they, they know that this is acceptable in however which way they, they conceptualize that they don't get disgusted by it as they do by um you know as i've mentioned before much lower levels of, of sort of physical uh, damage being done in a street situation so there is this this acceptance that this is um this is legitimate among people who are who are um uh, who are keen on it um, and I think it's, it's a question of how far the, the bodies that, um, that have a vested interest in promoting the sport want to walk that line one way or the other amp up the showmanship and the spectacular uh, sort of drama of it to draw in new uh, viewers or sort of present this family friendly genuine athletic contest image to, to win over the um, you know the Olympics and so on so yeah it's an interesting time to watch this unfold it's something that um, 
you know, gives us plenty to talk about in class for sure. Yeah, someone won't like it. There'll be some oh, fans yeah. that won't like yeah. it one way or another. Of course. Um, changing the tone a little bit, we've seen some um, we've seen some really sad, quite high-profile incidents in boxing fairly recently with people that have lost their lives from injuries sustained during a fight. Um, the Russian boxer Maxim Dadashev passed away in, in July, bleeding on the brain from a blow he took during the fight. This is when those... Again, it comes back to a similar question of what we were talking about just now about perceptions of, of combat sports, doesn't it? Because this is when we can see uh, instances like this of fighters that people wouldn't have heard of and they're at lower level mm. events as well. But this is when the media really run with it, don't they? And this is when people who maybe sit on the fence about whether mm. combat sports is a safe thing to do or not gets thrust back in and more people might be turned off from the sport. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is the case. Um, it's tragic and it's it's very sad. It's it happens again and again. It's it's no longer a tragedy. You know, it's a it's a travesty. And there should be something um, that we can do about these things. Um, there's growing recognition, I think, of uh, the health health damaging consequences of uh, participating in all sports, not just in combat sports. People die running marathons. You know, people die running half marathons. Um, it, it's not to trivialise it, of course, but it's to just put it into context. Um, I think when we see somebody die in a boxing match, we probably respond to that more uh, more strongly than when we respond to somebody dying in, a, in another sport which isn't you know sort of walking that line between violence and, and non-violence because of the you know the connotations um, this person was killed in a boxing match versus this person sadly died um, you know running a marathon so you know it's important that we contextualize this the deaths in combat sports are not um, unique to combat sports but at the same time you know, we, we've got to think about how um, the provision of medical care, um, you know, it's a hugely important thing to get right for the athlete's sake. But also, if we're thinking, a, you know, a little bit more sort of um, in terms of the sport development implications for this and the reputation of these sports, because those tragic injuries, deaths and so on are going to be seen um, perhaps more negatively when they happen in combat sports than they happen in other sports. That should be an incentive to the powers that be within these sports to double down and work even harder to protect the athlete's health because ultimately they're also protecting their own interests by doing that um that's a kind of argument that, that has come up a couple of times in the study that i've done recently particularly on those uh, from those medical staff who work at the higher end shows yes there's no governing body here there's no rules that they have to follow but the line usually goes because the tv cameras are here the organizers want to you know make sure that we've ticked every box that we're we're 100% safe that's why they've brought my team in you know I bring multiple doctors and ambulances and so on um, when the TV cameras aren't there um, perhaps you've not got quite such a, a keen awareness of the fact that um, something terrible happening here is going to reflect very very badly on you and your sport more widely so yes uh, you know we do see um, quite firm reactions to these things when they happen and I think that should if promoters and, and organisers of these sports have have really thought this through that should be an extra incentive if any was needed um to you know to take medical care seriously and, and to really put that in place um it seems a little bit mercenary to be talking about in those terms but that's the language that people who um who run these sports are most likely to understand you know it's, it's about their their future livelihoods in in this uh, in this industry so um yeah yeah we're talking about talking about head injuries in general quick discussion about concussion really um in sport in general because it's a huge talking point in combat sports obviously but in other sports too we've seen in the ashes this summer uh with steve smith and the dangers of fast bowling we will see it in the rugby world cup coming up no doubt with very strict um, concussion uh protocols but these sports they're all being played right on right on the edge 
aren't they? Like you said, you've 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 consented to to play these sports. You've consented basically that these dangers are there. So these can't really be eradicated playing on that edge. You know, when Joffre Archer's steaming in and bowling at ninety six miles an hour. You know, a bouncer from a fast bowler is one of the greatest things to see in cricket. When you see a, a massive tackle come in in rugby, it's, a, it's it's part of the game as long as it's legal. We can see the most incredible punches thrown in boxing. So is it actually about better aftercare or during the sport? I think that's that's something that can be, obviously can always be invested in and um, hopefully improved. Um, diagnosing concussions can get better. That's very difficult to do. It's often... Um, the reason that people people suffer quite badly from this is we don't diagnose it properly and they continue playing and you know get hurt. Um, I think you know the question of consent is is absolutely key, and I'll, I'll focus on that for now because that's something that I've spent most of my time um, thinking about and then arguing about. You know, as a researcher, I know very well that consent means nothing unless it's informed consent, right? You don't know what you're consenting to. You can't really consent, and it's, it's not really the, the the moral sort of um, trump card that people think it is. So that has quite profound implications for um, particularly young people in sports. So, at what age do we think that young people are able to properly consent to? potentially receiving brain damage um, there's a, a big debate right now among a lot of um, coaches that I know in, in uh, kickboxing mixed martial arts and so on around head contact for, for younger uh, athletes should you be training head contact should you be training at you know, 14, 15 years old um, how to withstand being punched repeatedly in the head if you want to develop your chin as they say um, you need to take those shots you need to know how to slip punches and you need to, to, to know what it feels like to be hit but every single time you get hit in the head you suffer a tiny amount of brain damage. If you get knocked out, you know, you, this is lasting damage that you're doing to yourself. Is it right and fair to be doing that to kids who don't really know the consequences? We always say, don't we, that kids think they're invincible, you know, and absolutely so. In a combat sport, you're taught to, to believe you're invincible. You know, it's, it's the way you prepare for competitions. So I think there's some, some really, um, really troubling questions to be asked about that. Uh, a friend of mine who, who used to box at a very high level, she told me that um, one of the, the drills that her coach would do with her, I mean, this is back in the day this is a, you know, a couple of decades ago would be um, yeah, do you ever do this, this, this game where you, you have a stick and you sort of put the stick on the ground and you put your head on the stick yeah, and you just run, run around, around to make yourself dizzy you yeah. know? it's a party game right mm. well she would do this and this, this was a, a national level coach was coaching at people who were going to go to the Olympics by doing dizzy drills so we'd do the dizzy thing so you're dizzy and then you have to spar and then you have to go a certain number of rounds so that you learn how to hide the symptoms of concussion, wow. of being unsteady on your feet, so that a referee won't stop a fight um, in that coach's view uh, prematurely um, for a simple little thing like a concussion. So you've got a culture in sports where not only are we perhaps not really taking this, this question of informed consent quite as seriously as we, as we should be, we've also got the normalisation of, con- of, uh, of concussion and the sort of treating it as an obstacle to be overcome. Now, I can't say how far that's that's embedded in sports like cricket rugby and so on um, but there's certainly uh, you know a good number of folks who would possibly describe themselves as being a little bit old school um, who who would still see these practices as legitimate you know uh, and i think until we can dislodge that kind of culture um, which is happening you know people are, are talking about this it's being put on the agenda it's being dealt with um, but until that's that's properly done away with i think we're going to continue to see um, you know quite dangerous concussion um, practices and, and people getting badly badly hurt from it yeah there have been a few calls um after the the steve smith incident um from um welfare experts from across different sports mm. who have have been calling for regulation of, of concussion protocol to sort of apply the same protocol to apply across all sports something very very strict so we've had there have been in the past few years sort of tests where um an athlete could actually just learn recite 
orders of things mm. so they can because even when they're concussed they could they might yeah. be able to still sing a song or so they could basically recite a concussion test and now they're sort of being and now the, the the new sort of techniques seem to be about sort of concussion testing them when they're completely fit and fine mm. and then going back to the same test when they might be concussed and then trying to confuse them a bit by mixing up the questions is that the sort of thing that could work and do you agree with the sort of some of the idea of and some people from different sports who do believe that the best thing to do is to come up with something really very strict and it sort of applies across all sports I think you would get quite a lot of resistance from any any attempt to do a one-size-fits-all job um, and that that itself becomes a, a sort of a cliche that people who don't really want to do this can hold up oh yeah but this is a cricket thing this isn't going to work in rugby or this is a you know this is a football thing it doesn't apply to boxing um i, I think there is a, a growing recognition of the need to do something and a strict protocol is something that governing bodies particularly can hold up and go look we follow this gold standard protocol we've ticked all the boxes and that to some extent serves as a kind of defense against charges of you're not doing enough to protect your athletes so i think in that sense uh, you know a formal um recognized protocol is a good thing uh, which will probably get buy-in provided that it's you know it's effective and it actually does help um help people um recently the the association of ringside physicians uh, published a paper in the, the british journal of sports medicine where they they're, they're outlining a protocol for um the treatment of concussion in uh, in boxing uh, or combat sports more broadly but it's, it's mostly um i think from the context it's mostly to do with boxing uh, and i think there's promise in that you know that this kind of recognized procedure that you can look at and say well at least we've got this right this is better than having nothing um just to go back to to my my research which is what i'm sort of safer talking about yeah. so i actually researched uh you know I, I saw a range of different protocols if you can even call them protocols being used by people who are you know various different grades of medical staff some are doctors um some are paramedics some are emergency medical technicians so like ambulance techs you know they're not it's sort of lower than a paramedic in terms of the hierarchy in a, in a sense um you know and some are just first aiders you know they, they don't know what concussion looks like you know they, they know what it is but they don't really know how to, how to diagnose let alone um, what they should be doing about it and i've seen people run through little checks whether you know follow my finger and, and tell me your name and what's your postcode that sort of stuff uh, but it's all very loose and it's all very much you know does this person think about it enough to to implement this in a in a in a, um, in a sport situation uh, if we had something that was standard that you could hold up and say this is what you should all be doing, I think that would at least set a baseline for, for practice, which, okay, it's not going to solve all the problems, but it, it's better than nothing, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm pleased to see moves in that direction. But as I said at the start, you know, whether this will be widely taken up and what kind of pushback there'll be against it from folks who are not you know, entirely uh, convinced by it um, remains to be seen. Yeah, because ultimately it will come down to those medical professionals. An athlete who may be concussed as well would always want to come back on and, and if they and if we can't go by what the athlete's saying because they haven't been appropriately tested and then like you say if, if, it, if it's a if it's a big high profile event with lots of cameras there yeah. you know the coach would probably want them back on as well so or the, or the trainer in the, in, a, in a combat sport so it's so important to have those medics properly trained and know what they're doing and make the call and it to be that's it that's my decision no questions asked yeah. If it were that simple, it'd be, it'd be wonderful. Yes. If it was, this is my decision, and that's the end of it. Um, as long as everybody else in that field accepted that that's the end of it, uh, I think that would be good. From what I've seen, uh, and from plenty of other studies as well of, of other sports contexts, whether we've looked at medical practitioners, they don't tend to have that much power. Um, in some in some contexts, you know, you've got fantastic people who are running sports, referees, coaches, you know, promoters and organisers, and, and you know, officials and so on. Um, who take the, the word of the medicus gospel and that's it 
it's game over. If they say stop, we stop. Um, but then you've got plenty of other contexts where that's not the case. Where, well, if the athlete, you know, if he's okay to carry on, you know, it's, it's his decision. You know, of course he's going to carry on. Like you said, he's been concussed, diminished capacity, possibly, or even if he hasn't, still just desperately wants to compete. That's that's what athletes do. Um, you've got people in the crowd who are cheering. You know, let him fight. You know, I've actually saw this. I <laughs> yeah. saw somebody. It wasn't a concussion. It was a, a horrific bleed. It was disgusting amount of blood pouring out this guy's head. It was like a comedy horror show. You know, spurting out this guy's head. Because the blood wasn't going directly into his eye, the referee and everybody else, oh, he's fine, he can see, he's fine. The medics there wanted to stop the fight because of the, the hygiene implications. This guy's not been blood tested, and now his blood is all over ringside. I had it on myself, I was sitting ringside, I had it on my hands, I had it on my glasses. You know? um, his opponent was wearing a mask. They wanted to stop the fight so they could try to staunch the bleed, um, but the promoter of the event didn't let them. In the middle of the ring, you've got the referee, you've got the promoter, you've got the whole crowd pouring all around. Let him fight, let him fight. So the medic tried to make a decision there, overruled immediately. Now, I think this is the kind of situation where if you've got this formal external protocol that everybody says, yes, we agree with this, we sign up to it, this is what we're going to do, you've at least got that that the medics can hold up and say, yeah, but this is the thing that you said you'd do, right? This is our role within that policy. Our, our role within that procedure is to stop this, this, this match, this fight, whatever, when we see a problem. And that's our purview, that's our prerogative. And you've accepted that beforehand. Whereas in this situation, without that kind of external policy, it's kind of where well, we just make it up as we go along. You know, another example in point would be uh, a few years ago, the um, Ava Carnero at Chelsea, with uh, you know, Jose Mourinho yelling at them for, for going on the pitch and treating a player. Mm-hmm. Medical care seen as interfering with sport. Never mind what the doctor has seen as something that needs to be done. As a medical professional, the football manager knows best, shouts him down, get on with it. And that goes on a lot. You know, sports medical practitioners do not have a lot of power in most contexts. So I think, if anything, these kind of external protocols, whatever they, they focus on, one of the things that would be, for me, an absolute priority would be ensuring that the people who are there on the ground to make those decisions have the power to actually action them when they make them. Mm. We end every podcast with some questions away from work. These are five sort of quick fire talking points and questions which is going to start with. So um, first one would be, what advice would you give to your younger self? Probably train more, play less computer games. That would probably be my... Okay, (laughs) great. Um, Can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Um, yeah, I actually used to come to Eastbourne uh, as a kid on holidays. Um, my nan and granddad used to bring us down here and we used to go up to Beachy Head. Um, being back here after quite a few years of being in other parts of the country, uh, yeah, I really love it up there. It's lovely. Gorgeous countryside. What are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? Reading, I've just just managed to get my hands on um, the, the complete Conan the Barbarian Chronicles. <laughs> so, yeah, something, something, some, uh, some light uh, holiday reading that I'm working my way through. Aside from all the academic stuff, which is boring, we've already talked about. Okay. Um, and describe your perfect weekend. Wake up relatively early, walk the dog, bit of training, barbecue in the afternoon. Lovely. Um, and if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? Now, I know that you're supposed to say something quite interesting here to come across as all cultured and everything. I did think about this one, and honestly, it would be my old university friends. We see each other a few times a year, and those, those are the best days. So, yeah, it would be a select group, only three. But, yeah, it would be some of my old friends. <laughs> Thanks to Alex for his time. You can find out more about his work by clicking or tapping the links in the podcast description. That's about it for this week, but a friendly reminder, if you're not already, you can like and subscribe to this podcast series. Just search University of Brighton in your preferred podcast app, like Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iTunes. Thanks for listening.